Nancy Wyman, state Democratic chairwoman. Nancy, thanks so much for being here. And with us today is Nancy Wyman. This is the Donkey Talk Podcast with your host, Connecticut Democratic Party chairwoman, Nancy Wyman. Hi, everybody. I'm Nancy Wyman. And today I'm very happy to have a special guest with me, somebody that I've known for many, many years, um, seen him grow up and become a state representative, and he's done a fantastic job representing uh, the town of East Hartford. Um, I'm going to let him talk a little bit about what he's done and who he is as an individual, um, but I was had the pleasure of serving with his mom as a state representative. Uh, her name was Melody Curry, and so I would like to introduce to all of you our state representative, Jeff Curry, from East Hartford. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I appreciate yeah. it, too. So how did you get involved in politics? So my story was probably a little different from others, but I was basically born into it. I had no choice whatsoever. Right, <laughs> um, right. So there's actually been a Curry in elected office in East Hartford every year since 1982, uh, when my father started on the Board of Education. Uh, right. And then later on, uh, my mother ran for office and was a state representative. Uh, and so everybody's kind of held various municipal and elected uh, state offices uh, throughout my lifetime. And growing up, knocking on doors at the age of three and four, you kind <laughs> of get a, a feel for it, a passion for it. Uh, and you kind of see the, the difference that your, uh, your family was making. And so it just was a no-brainer to come back home after college and, and kind of go full throttle into this and see what I was going to be able to do. Your grandmother was involved, too. She was, yes. She was actually the first female clerk uh, in, at the New York Senate uh, back in the day. Oh, yeah. She yeah. was definitely uh, a tall, statuesque, blonde in heels <laughs> who ran the show, and uh, everybody knew it back then. And that, was, oh, yeah. that was great. That's yep. the best thing about it. But you, you got involved a lot into the education when you were on the Board of Ed in, in, in East Hartford. Yes. And so it was kind of a tough decision for you to leave the Board of Ed if I remember correctly. Yeah, it was. It, it was because uh, at that point I had uh, been elevated to the chair of the Board of Ed. Um, I was young. I was in my early 30s. Uh, I had just hired a new superintendent who was also in his early 30s. And so we were going to take on the world together. Uh, but then when the position opened up at the state level, uh, yeah, you kind of sit back and, and you think, you know, how can you effectuate change more uh, at, a, at a grander scale? And so uh, it was... Uh, a tough decision, but it was the right decision, Absolutely. especially given kind of the work that I've been able to do thus far. And you did a great job hiring a great superintendent. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Superintendent Quinnell is fantastic. Yes, he's really wonderful. And and the, during your work in on the on the local board of education, some of the things that you changed. Uh, like what? Yeah, so it was during the time when um, the Malloy administration had brought forth the whole Common Core change. Uh, so uh, I was instrumental with helping to implement that throughout the district. Um, one of the other great things, uh, which back then we had some uh, pushback, but I think the parents all appreciate it now, is uh, we instituted a whole uniform policy throughout the district. So got rid of those morning fights where everybody's screaming and clamoring to find pants and shirts that match and so, right. uh, made everybody's life a little bit easier. But uh, yeah, and then also we were... Um, the first school in the Northeast or school district who created an international baccalaureate pipeline K through 12. Um, and SEBA, our um, high school international baccalaureate, is actually rated the number one or two high school uh, in the state typically and in the top 20, 25 in the Can country. Can explain that to our audience, what baccalaureate Yeah, is? so it is a, an international kind of worldwide model uh, that is used uh, throughout the world. 
um, and really focuses on asking a lot of the questions and, and really puts the students at the center of everything and, and their thought process and the why, the how, the where, the when, and just really engages students at a level uh, that they may not otherwise have in the traditional public school systems. But we've actually been able to take a number of those things from SEBA and the IB uh, curriculum and implement those within the, our traditional public school systems uh, just to kind of make sure we have a, an even playing field with all of our students throughout the district. That's a, that's a great it's a great program. Yeah, I want to yes. talk about it a little bit yeah. more. And, um, you know, you uh, uh, we talk about a lot of things that we all do in our own lives and what we uh, feel uh, compelled and want to do and, and speak out to. Uh, you have been an advocate for the LGBTQ community, and you have accomplished a lot of things to helping people in the community. But it's not only that community. It, it expands onto every other community in the state because you have been out there helping all people. And I'd like to talk about that a little bit more. Um, we need to talk about uh, the community and the LGBTQ community and some of the changes. You know, when I first started out um, as a legislator, um, AIDS was the main discussion that we had. And, and you know, it has quieted down some but we still don't, people still don't understand that it's still there. But we're thankful now that we have different kinds of drugs and people are living for longer. And one of my closest friends, who um, uh, one of the first people I knew of that died of AIDS, um, fought hard at, back then. And uh, now to see the difference is, is, is absolutely wonderful, but it's also to show the differences of equality now, that people now can speak out more. And you've been able to help out on the, the, that access to that medication mm -hmm. um, and some of the other services. Do you want to talk about yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, so I will say when I came into the legislature, one of the biggest fears I had was that I was going to be just labeled uh, that gay legislator. <laughs> and I remember having a conversation with my mother and and really, really worrying about how to uh, kind of navigate that. And so I came into the legislature a, a bit apprehensive about advocating uh, uh, for the LGBTQ, but had a really great conversation with a friend of mine who who said, you know, as a person of color, when I walk into a room, I can't leave that at the door. So why should you have the privilege of leaving that at the door? And it, that just hit me like a ton of bricks. And ever since that moment, it's just been full throttle. What and, a great uh, way of saying that. Yeah, That's wonderful. Yeah. It really is. Yeah, it kind of puts that into kind of perspective. And so this past legislative session, we had, we jokingly say, the gayest legislative session in <laughs> really? Connecticut's history. Oh, yeah. Aside from marriage equality, which, yes, um, which I thought yes, I want to be yes. talking about that. <laughs> you know, um, part we of that passed a, a number of pieces of legislation this year, um, including, you mentioned the HIV AIDS uh, crisis. And yes, it's no longer a death sentence. Um, but unfortunately, Connecticut saw an uptick in HIV cases in the mm -hmm. last DPH report, which was in direct contrast to the Northeast, who actually saw a decrease. And, and the DPH is Department of Public Health. Correct. Yep. And uh, I know we live in acronym we world. Do, we <laughs> do. We do. <laughs> and uh, so um, one of the things that we wanted to do, um, especially within our communities of color, where we saw that uptick the most in our right. young men of color, um, we wanted to ensure that they had the right preventative medicine uh, to stop that spread and to hopefully get to zero and uh, support the campaign over at the Department of Public Health. 
Um, and so uh, Connecticut kind of had it backwards, whereas you could be treated for HIV without parental consent, but you couldn't get the medicine ahead of time to prevent you from getting HIV without parental consent. And because we know that often the LGBTQ youth aren't always comfortable having these conversations with their families in fear of being um, emotionally abused, physically abused, and or kicked out of their house and excommunicated from their families altogether. Uh, we worked closely um, with partners on both sides of the aisle and chambers and actually passed legislation to remove that parental consent piece. And now minors are able to access that medicine um, without having to go through the stresses of having to have that somewhat difficult conversation. Um, so we, we've uh, got that through. Um, we're the first state now who has statutorily created an LGBTQ Health and Human Services Network. That's and, fantastic. Yeah, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, and we have half a million dollars um, to work on this, which is um, unheard of right now. Uh, but I think the uh, given the importance of some of the work that we're going to do, I think everybody saw that this was something that we should be moving forward with and kind of identifying those uh, service oases throughout the state in which there's no services, programs, or just safe spaces for some of the community to be able to uh, turn to. Uh, we're going to spend some time doing that needs analysis and then providing some sorts of mini grants through uh, DPH once again to fill some of those holes. And will this be content helping out with our youth um, in, in the high schools or when they're first identifying themselves uh, as part of the community? Yeah, part of that will be having conversations to ensure um, that those those uh, conversations are able to happen at the high school level. Um, True Colors, uh, which is right. a fantastic Just, organization yes, based uh, right, uh, out of here in Hartford, um, they've been working with a number of districts around the state to help create their GSAs, uh, which is uh, formerly known as Gay Straight Alliances, but they're now Gender Sexuality Alliances. Um, and I, we actually just went through uh, two full days where Robin McKaylin from Two Colors and I helped facilitate professional development for the CREC schools. They're implementing these district-wide and every one of their schools is going to have a GSA. And so uh, we're hoping that the districts around the state are going to kind of follow suit and, and provide those safe spaces for those students to be able to turn uh, to staff and just fellow students to, to uh, kind of help figure things out. Because it's difficult. It sucks. I remember being back in middle school. It was like the worst time in my entire life. Yeah. Um, and, and you're just tormented and tortured and made to feel as though you're less than. And, and you know, you, you go through the... the the parts where you're just contemplating taking your own life because you don't think it's worth living because nobody understands. And so just knowing that I've gone through that, you don't want that to have anybody else go through that experience as well. So, and you know, it, it also does. And of course it helps uh, the people in the community, but it also helps teach those that are not in the community mm -hmm. about what it's like mm -hmm. to, to be LGBTQ and how it feels. So people then can understand um, of what you're going through mm -hmm. and or other people are going through and what families go through. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Having allies is, uh, being an ally is just as important as being part of the community. Yeah, it really, really does help a lot. And you've actually been one of the greatest allies, <laughs> I have to say. So, yeah, yes. you know, my, my sister happens to be part of the community and, um, and she went through her own thing. She was, she did marry and had two children mm -hmm. and now she's with, the love of her life, and um, which is great. Yeah. She's fantastic. And uh, the best story I can tell about that is that when my sister and her partner got together, my father was in the hospital up in Albany, New York. 
And um, so the two of them were visiting, and the nurse came in. And so my father says, I want to introduce you to my two daughters, two of my daughters. One name is Linda, and the other one's name is Lindy. And she said, the third one, we got sick of that name, so we named, named her Nancy. <laughs> because my sister's name is Linda, and my sister's partner, my other sister is Lindy. So it's, it's a way of understanding mm -hmm. the community. It's a way of understanding that all of us have uh, an equal part in this. Mm -hmm. You have done so much. And I, I'm going to kind of get off of this subject just a little bit because things that I'm living through and you, you're living through now, of course, and many people in our state and the eastern part of our state are living through is a thing called crumbling foundations. Mm -hmm. And um, something that people do not know about. And I think that... Uh, you have really gotten into this and really taken this on and fought, fought, fought fighting a hard battle for it. And I really appreciate it since it's my, na it's my neighbors, it's my towns mm -hmm. um, that have been involved. And you want to just talk about the Crumbling Foundation? Yeah, absolutely. Bit? So it's a, uh, an epidemic that's impacting basically a quarter of the state's municipalities at this point. And, uh, you know, it's called Crumbling Foundations because literally foundations are crumbling. Um, you have some homes that you're able to take both of your hands and stick them through these cracks. Uh, you have homes that have to reset their doors once a year because of the settling. Um, I, I met one woman who has snakes coming in through the holes into her house. Um, and so, you know, with upwards of a, a few thousand homes, uh, the numbers were once conflated to be a whole lot more. Um, we think that number is actually a whole lot less. Um, but uh, we've been able to get ahead of this and have government move at the speed of light to come up with a program, uh, or not a program, I should say. Uh, we create, uh, statutorily required that a captive insurance company be created. It's a private nonprofit company, just as any other uh, private company is in the state of Connecticut. And uh, with the assistance of the state bonding $100 million over five years, um, and, and you were instrumental in that in your role as lieutenant governor taking this on. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I don't think we were able we would have been able to push that through the way that we did without your support. Um, we've been able to secure so far 40 million of that. We're looking at the next 20 million um, coming up for the next bond agenda. And then we're still fighting for that last 40 million. Um, but we've been able to lift houses up, have those houses fixed, put those houses right back down and provide folks um, that safe space that they're, they're looking for. You know, we used to frame this as, you know, it's a home, your, your greatest uh, investment. Uh, but after talking to homeowners for a while, they, they make you realize that it's kind of a cold statement to say it that way because it's actually their home. It's where they go to at the end of a long day where That's they true. have the stresses of work and you just, you can't wait to get into your house and just know that all of that outside noise is just gone. Yeah. And they just didn't have that sense of security anymore. And the, and the interesting part too is people say, well, you're only doing it for these people and whatnot. No, the truth is what you're doing it for is for every taxpayer in that, in that town mm -hmm. because if the house is worthless, mm -hmm. their home is worthless, they're not paying taxes on it. And so you basically, the other tax, the other pe people in the, in the town whose houses might not be affected is going to see their tax rates go up. Yeah, because we originally passed the, the legislation. Uh, the first thing out was to allow the homeowners to go through the reassessment process. And so that's created quite a hole in local budgets, especially um, in, fo in places like Tolland. And uh, Tolland, South Windsor, and Manchester are three huge communities that are being hit by this um, in the tens of millions of dollars of uh, reassessed um, uh, um, 
amounts of money so that that's going to have to be covered by yes everybody else in those communities people should understand this it's also came from one quarry that was in the Willington area and it's because of the stream that goes down it's pyrotite pyrotite, pyrotite yep. that uh, came into it it was not the, that the way they placed it only it was because of the the kinds of um, groundwork that they had to do with it uh, and pulling it out and stuff. Yeah, and there's no, and unfortunately there's no set standard for this. Yeah. And you could have 0.01 percent of pyrotite and your house could fall down tomorrow, or you could have 20 percent pyrotite mm -hmm. and you could be fine for 40 years. Yeah. It, it's just it, it's all about the level of water and oxidation, and we get really super nerdy fast, about it. But, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and in fact, the the truth is, is uh, the town of Holland is now going through it where our newest school, mm -hmm. our elementary school, has it, and we have to redo the entire elementary school. Mm -hmm. And I do thank the state for coming in and helping us with that. Yeah, but, Representative Phineas Wilson was instrumental in making sure that that level of reimbursement was upped from what the traditional level would be for the, the town of Holland. And recognizing the fact that the residents had nothing to do with this. That's not their fault. Yeah. Um, but uh, the, the state was once again able to step up and, and do the right thing. And, it, and it's a... You know, it, it's a, a strange um, thing to happen in the state. And, of course, it happens in one area of the state, and it's not going to happen in any other area of the state mm -hmm. right now because they're not going to be using um, the, the, the materials that we used before. Right. And, of um, course, we have to be the only ones that this ever happened to in the country. And, right. But there's been similar instances in Canada and Ireland. And right. so... And um, in Massachusetts now. Yeah, Massachusetts is seeing it over the border. Rhode Island has not um, come forward and said they have it, but oh. we're pretty sure that they have the problem, too. Don't. Yes. <laughs> and, and we do know that Governor Lamont has had conversations with the other area governors. Um, and what's great about the captive insurance company that was set up is that it's set up in a manner that those other states can actually jump on board and become part of that captive and then help offset administrative costs. Um, but we can set up various cells so that uh, Connecticut money is still going to Connecticut people, but Mass or Rhode Island money could go specifically to them as well. So, Jeff, what do you think is going to come up next session? What do you, what, some, what, some of the things that you might be thinking about or that you'd like to introduce or what do you think is going to be? Next session, I hope we were able to get through the legalization of marijuana. 100%. It is one of the issues that a majority of Connecticut residents want us to see get done that we have not been able to move forward with yet, which is just mind-boggling to me. Yeah. Uh, so we're, de we're, we're definitely still pushing on that to see what we can do. Especially since most of the states surrounding us mm -hmm. already have legalized Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. And people should also know that we did do steps um, towards medical marijuana so that we can treat our are those that are sick with it, with with the marijuana that really does help them. Oh yeah, and a lot of the treatments that uh, for the diseases that are are now occurring. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, I love the drive to Northampton, but you know, <laughs> 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 no. So between that. Um, uh, I'd like us to see some more movement around ECS, uh, the education cost sharing, which is how we fund our education system mm -hmm. here in the state of Connecticut. Uh, we were able to um, really put this on track two years ago uh, with the bipartisan budget that we passed and really setting out a 10-year plan with regards to education formula, the education formula. But I think we need to actually finish what we started. And I'd like to see us move to a unified funding stream, which is a fair funding for all model. 
Um, and regardless of whether you are at a charter, a magnet, a traditional public school, um, every should, everyone should be funded exactly the same way. We can get rid of tuition payments between districts um, and just kind of consolidate all those pots of money over at SDE into one. And just, State Department of Education. State Department of Education, yes. <laughs> and really just help better fund our municipality, our municipalities and, and our state board or our boards of education. But, uh, but along those lines also is that we have to continue that conversation of regionalization and consolidation of school districts. And I know it's a hot button issue and Lamont was raked over the coals for this. Um, uh, you know, I, I maybe wasn't rolled out the way that it could have been to allow for a little bit more, con you know, constructive conversations. Um, but we sat at a panel earlier this week with the new commissioner of education and the governor, and there were two students from very small districts who both said that they were frustrated with the lack of resources that some of their larger neighbors were seeing. And to me, that is a cry for regionalization right there. Um, mm -hmm. and, and being able to provide the best for all of our students, regardless of where they live. I think you, you can give an example. In, in the northeast corner of the state, there's a, a school that has, a, in this very small town, has a preschool and it has five kids in it, mm -hmm. four of them boys and one girl. Mm -hmm. um, and then when they go into their regular elementary school, um, there's like, 50 kids in the elementary school, and, and they are a regional district, but it's regional up at the high school level. Mm -hmm. And even at the high school level, they're feeling that there are three towns that they have. Um, isn't enough students in that, that they would like to close that down and open it up to other, uh, like Norwich Free Academy and whatnot. Um, so there's people out there that really understand that uh, there are certain towns that have two superintendents. Mm -hmm just because they have one for their town and one for the region line, but also end up with maybe a three principals for 200 kids right. or less than that. And uh, so I think that's where people have to understand it a little bit more. I think it's explaining it a little bit more, not taking it away from individuals. I would imagine there are certain towns out there that would vote for their towns to go into more of a regional way. Yeah, if they understood it. It's all right. about educating pe people and, and building those right. relationships and having that trust that what you're doing is not uh, is not to them, but hopefully with them. That's right. Yes. It's, it's a big difference. Yeah. It's not an easy sell. But. No, it's not. It's not. But when you look at some of those reports from, from the State Department of Ed, I think there's one district that when it shows the number of students in the district, there's an asterisk because it's so low that they can't even put it on a piece of paper. It, it, to me, that's just absurd. That's, it's got to be ridiculous. But, that, but people are going to be talking about that, and oh, yeah. that is going to be out there. Um, and, and hopefully we'll see some some real changes that, that's good for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Representative Rojas was on the other day, and he would, we talked about uh, also different kinds of regionalizations within, within towns. Mm -hmm. I'm sure he gave his 911 example of the Metro yes. Houston area. Right, And it's a true thing. And, and we have to talk about things. People want to talk about um, our, our budget and how expensive it is to live in Connecticut, mm -hmm. um, even though we have a great state. And, um, but you have to look at what the costs are and where the costs are coming from. Yeah, and local yeah. control, it costs money to keep local control. And if you want to have local control, fantastic. Have at it, but just know that resources are limited, and you may just not see anything from us at the state level. <laughs> but it, but at the same time, it's it's also how we can allow the locals to do what they want to do. Too. Yes, 
And yeah. sometimes we have to release them from some of the things that we say you have to do it this way if they want to do it a different way and bring things together. Yeah. They they have that, that right also. It's it's a pretty tough job if you as you remember, um, being oh, yeah. on the local level. Yeah. Local <laughs> <laughs> walking out of a grocery store was pretty hard because you always got nailed to talking That's to somebody. That's why I do my shopping at 10 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're much younger than I am. <laughs> you can do that. So if you can tell young people right now, how do, you, how, do, how do we get young people involved um, in politics? How do we get them to, to come in and, and really speak out and use their voices? Because um, you're still considered young. Oh, I just turned 40, Nancy. I'm not that young. Excuse me. You're ta- <laughs> now you're, you're talking <laughs> Granted, to. you knew me, I think, when I started as your height. But, right. uh... <laughs> <laughs> and that was without my heels. Um, but, um, but really, how do you... You know, you, I mean, like you, you talked about the fact that you got involved because your mom and dad, mm-hmm. grandmother was involved in it. If we don't have the parents involved in it, what do we, how do we get into the schools or how do we get young people to speak out? Yeah, I think there's, if we can find a way to really engage, um, especially our high schoolers and whether it's creating young Dems uh, type of organizations, uh, there's a great organization, Youth in Government, that I was involved with um, mm-hmm. when I was in high school. Um, that really helped you learn the process uh, of the, the state legislature and really kind of uh, exposed you to some of the nuances that you wouldn't have otherwise seen around state government. Uh, so, so I think it's any of those kind of programs that we can really get folks into. But again, if you create those programs, you need somebody uh, typically at our level to be able to come in and help oversee and provide guidance. And so we have to be willing to want to help at that level as well and not just assume somebody else is going to take it on for us. Right. And, and I think some of the things that I would hope we can get out to, to the younger, younger people is that it's not us just telling you what to do. It's us learning from you what should be done. Mm-hmm that your voices are, are, are necessary. And it's not just sitting down and saying, here's a classroom, this is what you do. Mm-hmm. And I think in your youth in government and some of the programs that we had at the Capitol for the weekends and mm-hmm. stuff and how they can run for office or um, and how they pass a bill and whatnot. Yeah, and, and getting them involved in legislation. Uh, right. We had a number of young folks come out this year with whether it was the, the plastic bag ban or the straws or, right. or uh, paid leave. Uh, so anytime you can get them exposed and show them that their voice matters and that people are actually listening to them, then they're definitely yeah. going to be a whole lot more engaged. And my best experience as a lieutenant governor, one of the best experiences as a lieutenant governor, a young man named Jack Healy, Keely was coming around. He wanted to change the law because he didn't, when he got into high school, he did not want to cut open a frog. So he <laughs> wanted to change it, that there's another way of doing things so you don't have to do that in biology. And he went around to every legislator. He testified in front of the legislative committees. He went and literally lobbied everybody. He even came into the lieutenant governor's office. So uh, he got the bill out of committee. It went to the floor of the House and the Senate. And we kept it to the, like, the last night. So <laughs> Jack was up in the balcony, and we were bringing up the bill. And you know, last night of session, oh, those yeah. of people don't know, we were running through bills really quickly because we were scared the clock was going to split. Like an auctioneer. Twelve, yeah, <laughs> yeah, basically, you're an auctioneer. And Jack was up there, and we called his bill. They debated it. I pulled him down. And I said, okay, we're going to vote on this singly. And he voted on it, of course. It passed 
100%. And I said, okay, Jack, you got the hammer. Took the hammer, hammered it down. <laughs> nice. And he said, the bill is passed. <laughs> he was nine years old. Wow. And Jack has come back to the Capitol almost every year with different students from school, from his school, and tells them the process, has many elected officials come in and meet with them, and always had the honor of going to meet with some of the students and stuff. And he is now very involved in politics in his own town. Oh, really? Yeah, he's oh, gone out, worked on campaigns and whatnot. So, nice. you know, that's a it's a it's a it's a fun story, but mm-hmm. it's a true story. And people say he was really nine. Yeah, he was really nine years old and really was able to do yeah. that and had the support of his mom, of course. And um, but those are the kind of things. Mm-hmm. So I know we have to go soon. So the question I have is, if you had to. I don't know, come up with a statement about how you guide yourself as an elected official. What, what, kind, of, what, what, what kind of wording would you do? And So my colleagues usually get tired of me saying this because uh, I try to say it as much as possible and everywhere, but it's all about the we before the me. And, it, it, you know, I try to, and I just broke my rule because what I'm going to say to you is remove the word I, me, and my from your vocabulary. Because unfortunately, we are kind of in an ego-driven uh, industry and where everybody is always trying to get the win versus seeking out the truth. Um, and so if we can make it more about the community at large as opposed to what I have done for me, myself, and I, um, hopefully that will kind of translate into some of the work that everybody else wants to do and realize that we're all in this together. None of us do this alone, and anybody who pretends to do it alone is completely lying to you. Uh, so we before the me. I know that, that's a great way of closing. I have to tell you, that's, I believe that statement makes it um, why you've become a great legislator and a true leader. Um, and I thank you for everything you've been doing. And uh, so it's uh, we instead of me. There you go. Thank you again, Jeff. Thank you. Donkey Talk is available on iTunes, Google Play, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. If you liked it, remember to subscribe and visit ctdems.org to get involved.